Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Coming up on today's episode, the prodigal son returns. Ben Elwood is back to continue our Sophia Coppola series with Marie Antoinette. I also review two graphic novels for you, Volume 2 of Something is Killing the Children and Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips' Reckless. My name is Justin Hamilton and I'm wrapped to be spending time with you here on Big Squid. Welcome to the show. It's great to have Ben back with me to take a look at Marie Antoinette. And this is an interesting chat because I think we have pretty different viewpoints on the film. It's a good chat about a divisive film. I think that's what it is, essentially. And I think we find some common ground. I think. I reckon we do. Why am I preempting this? I'll just let you listen to it. Uh, I also wanted to update you on two new graphic novels that I've read in recent weeks, Something is Killing the Children, Volume 2, and Reckless. So that's coming up shortly. A reminder that next Tuesday I have an exclusive interview with author Ryan Hughes talking about his wonderful debut novel, XX, a novel graphic. It is a big interview too. Ryan was very generous with his time for me and for you, and I just wanted to give you a heads up. So if you want to start his novel before I release the podcast, you have plenty of time to get it going. You don't have to. You can just wait and listen to the interview, maybe start the novel then if it interests you. But look, the interview doesn't give away too many spoilers, but there are some plot points that we talk about. I personally really enjoyed coming to the novel and not knowing a heck of a lot but that doesn't mean that you would enjoy it the same way. Either way, the interview is great. He's really fascinating, and it's one of my favourite interviews, even going back to my old podcast, Can You Take This Photo, Please? So I can't wait to drop that on you next week. Uh, Actually, I've received a new book from author A.W. Hammond that I'll start over the Easter break as well, so maybe I'll get him on soon too. 
Some more book reviews would be nice on the podcast. We should do another John Cheever short story. Yeah, all right. Just musing out loud where I'm going to take the podcast. Our live Big Squid Show is locking down a date this week too. I'll let you know more about that probably in Thursday's Leftovers podcast. Sorry, it's been moved around a few times. Producing live shows is tricky at the best of times, but especially in the chaotic aftermath of 2020, we're doing our best to get everything right for you, and I'm really looking forward to getting back out there on the stage with my friends. It's going to be a fun and interesting chat. The stuff that we have prepared is, it's going to be some some stuff for you to get your heads into. I think you'll really enjoy it. Okay. But as soon as I have that sorted, I'll let you know. So there are two graphic novels I want to recommend to you. First up is the second volume of Something is Killing the Children by James Tinian IV, Werther Deladira and Miguel Moreto. After the events in the first volume, Erica Slaughter has slain the monster that was terrorising the small town of Archer's Peak in Wisconsin. But unfortunately... The horror is far from over. Erica's mysterious handler arrives in town to clean up the mess she has made and also quarantine the townsfolk. Erica doesn't have time for this, though, because she has learned that the monster she killed was a mother. Dun-dun-dun! And now she has to kill its children. It's very, very hungry children. I like James' work at DC. I think it's pretty solid, but this is just... So much better. The pacing and the dialogue are on point, and that leads to some wonderful characterizations. I love the lead character, Erica Slaughter, and not just for her name either. She looks great. She's a cool-looking character. She is a cool character, and she's not afraid to uh, do whatever it takes to get the job done. She's tough and vulnerable, but the most appealing aspect of her is that she is quite clearly anti-establishment. So, as an example, she may work for this secretive organisation that specialises in killing monsters, but she does so out of a sense of duty, not because she's aligned with their ethos. Erica knows they're untrustworthy, but she has a job to do, and she is going to do it. We're also, in this volume, presented with insight into how she joined this organisation, one that has more interest in keeping the fact that monsters exist a secret Uh, above protecting the innocent people that these monsters stalk. That's an interesting little wrinkle, isn't it? I enjoy the supporting cast as well, including compromised police officers and confused teenagers and new monster hunters. There feels like when you're reading it, there's a whole world out there that these uh, creators will be able to explore. It's, It's not so much that they're always referencing it, but you just can tell, oh, this is just a tiny example of what's going on in in this world. I love that. Uh, D.L. Dera's artwork is evocative and pretty spooky, actually. And with Moreto's colours, it just has this perfect mood to it. There's a very definitive feeling that you get. Have you seen the German TV series Dark? I've I've only uh, had time to watch the first season. I really like that. But you know, when if you've watched it, you know there's just this this feeling that you get when you're in that world. And I feel like the artwork here and the storytelling 
it's it's not the same as dark as in it's not referencing that specific show but it, it's like dark in that you just have a a sense of it in the back of your head you can feel it uh, crawling across the skin at the back of your neck do you know what i mean I don't want to give too much away because this volume only makes up issues 6 to 10 of the ongoing series. I'm not reading it as issues. I've kind of given up on the monthly thing and I'm just reading graphic novels now. But with the adults being unable to see the monsters, whew, there is one page of artwork that will blow your socks off and give you the serious creeps. Like even thinking about it now, it's like, whoa, that would be such a amazing scene in any format, like in a movie, in a in a TV show, even as an audio play, it is so good. My only mild criticism, and I have to stress the word mild, <laughs> it's very mild, is that where the previous volume finished on a perfect note that felt like the end of a chapter, where you thought, right, well, that's the end of that story, and now we can move on. Uh, this volume feels like it finishes two or three chapters short. doesn't feel quite like its own story. You know how I was talking about with The Falcon and Winter Soldier, that first episode finished, and it was like, oh, this feels like the first 15 minutes of a movie, and uh, it, it, I hate it when things are kind of cut up into bits and not their own things while still telling a continuing story. So... To get to the end of this was a bit like, oh, there's there's no other chapters. But having said that, well, maybe that's just me wanting to read the next volume immediately. If the worst thing you can say about a graphic novel is that you wanted to read more, then that is a win. And as I said, a mild, mild, mild criticism. I'm really loving this. Can't wait for the next volume. I'm not sure when it's coming out, but uh, as soon as it does, I will check it out and I will let you know all about it. But definitely worthwhile uh, getting into. Uh, Next up is Reckless by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. I've been following their creator-owned work for a long time. And their latest graphic novel continues the excellent standard they first set 10 years ago, I think. In this latest story, we find ourselves in 1981 Los Angeles and Ethan Reckless is a secret gun for hire. When he's not surfing, you can find him downtown at his office, a dilapidated movie house where Ethan watches classic films with the one person he likes, his young assistant and fixer, Anna. To hire Ethan, you need to get your hands on his number and he doesn't just take any job. But when an old flame wanders back into his life, Ethan sets out to do the job for her, wondering who is actually playing whom here. Once again, I don't want to give too much away, but Ethan Reckless is another classic noir character from the Brubaker Phillips team. They're such masters of their craft that over the course of the graphic novel, you're treated to exciting action scenes, fun plot twists, and you also gradually learn a lot about Ethan. These stories can sometimes pass out their information all in one page dump. You know what I mean? It's sort of like one page where a character just says, well, this is what I used to be like, and then this happened to me, and then this happened to me, and now you know who I am. But this takes its time, and so by the end, you feel like you know Ethan better, and you also feel like you've probably known Ethan for a lot longer in your life than just that graphic novel. Uh, It also has an amazing opening, actually, that makes you want to tear into the story. Like... 
I read this one night when I couldn't sleep and had intended to at least, you know, start it. And then, you know, when you read a little bit when you, when it's really late at night and then you eventually drift off. But that opening is so good. I stayed wide awake <laughs> to finish it all in one sitting. And then I was awake a lot longer. It's really good. Brubaker and Phillips are amazing storytellers. The words are sp- Bass and muscular, the artwork is full of character, whether it is portraying a thought on a person's face or a city at a particular point in time. I also have to mention the colours by Jacob Phillips, which are so beautiful. There are whole scenes that look like they've been coloured to resemble a faded Polaroid photograph on a warm summer's day. This is the first book in a set of three that will be released this year, with the sequel, Friend of the Devil, due to come out in April. So... That's really close, right? Or by the time you're listening to this, it will be April. I can't wait to catch up with Ethan and Anna in their next story, especially now that I know both these characters. So all up, my big recommendations in the comic book world are both creator-owned titles. I have drifted away from DC and Marvel in recent years. I just feel like the big two companies have hit a creative dead end. And that's just me. I just don't feel like there's anything that interesting in the art form over there. But if you want a moody monster hunting tale that is only just getting started, check out the first two volumes of Something is Killing the Children. And if you want a classic noir tale with a new character you will want to see more of, check out Reckless for this first adventure. Erica Slaughter and Ethan Reckless. Who doesn't want to follow the adventures of characters with such cool names? Now it is time to return to 18th century France, where the soon-to-be King Louis XVI, Jason Schwartzman, marries the young and naive Marie, Kirsten Dunst. The opulent French court is steeped in conspiracy and scandal. Without guidance, adrift in a dangerous world, the young girl rebels against the isolated atmosphere at Versailles and becomes France's most misunderstood monarch. This is Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. Friendship between Austria and France must be cemented by marriage. (laughs) My youngest daughter, Antoine, will be Queen of France. (laughs) It is a custom that the bride retain nothing belonging to a foreign court. You represent the future. All eyes will be on you. She looks like a child. So, I've heard you make keys as a hobby? Yes. It'll be interesting to see how long she lasts. What on earth is going on with that young couple? It's a disaster. This is ridiculous. This, madame, is Versailles. The Queen has a somewhat artistic temperament. It's not too much, is it? Oh, no. She spends like mad. People of France are hungry. The King and Queen are complete blunderers. 
Don't they ever get tired of these ridiculous stories? Can't he do something? I'm not going to acknowledge it. He was in the shrubs at dawn with various men. He has quite a reputation. She's a terrible queen. Letting everyone down would be my greatest unhappiness. The Bastille fortress was stormed. There's a mob of hundreds on their way. You've already got the giggles. Yeah. <laughs> and that is, do you want me to go through the questions or do you just want to say to me what you wanted to say to me as I press record? No, 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 no. I want to go through the questions. Okay. What I want to say is inappropriate for recording. <laughs> you did just tell me a terrible story yeah. about you trying to be a man. Yeah. And uh, save kids from seeing an awful experience yep. with an animal that needed to be put out of mm. its misery. Mm-hmm. And I asked you not to tell me, but then I said in a moment of weakness... Tell me anyway. Tell me anyway, and I wish you hadn't told yeah, me. It wasn't pleasant. Look, yep. it I'm was... I'm not the man I thought I was. <laughs> no. And, and who is? Yeah, that's right. Who is? Who is? I wouldn't have in been able to do century. it. Yep. yep. No, I'm on your side, but <laughs> it was one of those stories where... People are thinking, what's happened to this podcast? But it is one of those stories that was so horrific. It's pretty funny. Yeah. 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 It's like one of those, you know, sometimes life is so awful, all you can do is laugh, right? Well, there's absolutely. Like, that's exactly what that story was. One of the great survival mechanisms. Have you ever told that story on stage? I have. Yeah. It feels like it needs to live further, even if the animal that you were trying to put out of its misery did not. Now I sound like a fucking Patrick Bateman psychopath. No, you don't. No, 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 no. Okay, look, for everyone, look, we're going to get straight into Marie Antoinette, but we just need to point out it was a story about Ben trying to do the right thing and put an animal out of its misery, and it just turns out that shit is harder to do. It's really hard. It's really hard. And you think that you can do it well, but... Yes. uh, Yeah. Hmm. Yes. Anyway. And as a dear friend of mine, you did not do it well. No, no. Come and see me perform. You can hear the whole story. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely an on-stage story. I want to. I want to see arm movements. Uh, getting into Marie Antoinette, I think that opening shot of Marie having her shoes slipped on while she lounges back and absentmindedly plays with the cake before looking directly yes. at us, all to the music of Gang of Fours. Natural's not in it. That might be one of my all-time favourite openings to a film. It's the best shot of the whole film. The best shot of the whole film. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful shot. Excellent. What was your reaction to that? Oh, I like burst out laughing and yeah. like and and was really jazzed for what was to come. Yeah, it's yeah. a really uh, audacious beginning, mm-hmm. and, it, and it says a lot about where she's going to take the story. Yep. And it's uh, it felt. I'll talk about this a little bit later on. It, that scene in particular. I'm not talking about content-wise, but kind of the spirit of it and the way it was put together, Mm. it felt a bit Kubrick to me. Yeah. Actually, it's funny you say that because this movie reminded me a lot of Barry Lyndon. Oh, right. It reminded me of a much faster-paced Barry Lyndon, but some of those shot compositions that really looked like paintings are 
yeah, that that was the vibe I got, and that kind of very subtle humor where it's taking the piss out of this culture and how absurd it is, and all the ceremony and all of the bowing and the, just the ridiculousness of it. But you know, not going hell for leather on it, just kind of subtly going, "This is absurd." Yes, but yeah, very Kubrick, and I thought one of the best fourth wall wall breakings I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, it very was, subtle. It very- was. Quite, uh, it was as you said, sitting here by myself watching it, I was a bit like, Oh, (laughs) it was great. Uh, this is the third movie in a row that deals with the awful loneliness that women can endure while living in a world populated by people who know how to use you without bothering to understand you. Hmm. And I kind of wonder because when you look back, the film had up and down reviews Hmm. when it first was released. But I wonder if it kind of feels a little bit more relevant today, especially in mm. the shadow of the Britney Spears documentary and yeah, things sure, like that. Yeah, sure, Yeah, I went on to Letterboxd, uh, which is like a film social media yeah. site, and it has pretty universally great reviews from what I saw. Right. Anyway, yeah, so it seems... Because I remember at the time it wasn't well received. It, uh, I, think, I think it was... Well received, so I always just check Rotten Tomatoes. I'm not really a fan of it, mm. but it just got just as an overview. Yeah, yeah. And it only had sort of like fifty four percent from the audience. Yeah. Right. And I can understand that there would be a a lot of audience who didn't enjoy the film and wouldn't enjoy it because they would feel like nothing really happens. And it's like, oh no, quite a lot happens mm. actually. But yeah. uh that subject matter what was when did this film first come out was it 2006 2006, something like like that that, uh i I don't think the general public was quite aware of that uh, Mm. even as a thing uh that we should be thinking about for for women yeah so it would have been alien to them yeah no that's funny i didn't even i I didn't even consider that while watching it yeah but that, that i think there's a lot of truth to that absolutely that she is just a prop for this uh, absurd, <laughs> absurd ceremony, and I mean, you know, I mean, I guess that's really exemplified when she's in bed, and you know, they're all kind of basically just waiting for them to have sex, right. as though it's like this is your duty. And it's like, I actually thought that I was amazed when they actually left the boudoir right. on the wedding night. I thought they were all going to sit around and watch the consummation of the marriage. Like it's felt like that voyeuristic and yes. that kind of like you know you are. You know, basically, you know, at that point, like a, you know, the 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 new king or the 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 heir is like some stud, like on a horse farm or something, where right. it's just he's got a job to do, and there's no romance or wooing or anything. It's just very perfunctory. And she has a job to do, yeah. and it's it's another statement on, regardless of. We're not going to. We'll get a little bit into the historical significance of Marie Antoinette and the squid bits, but judging Marie on the basis of the character in this film, you know, she's just a teenage girl who mm. is living her life and then ostensibly is told, well, you need to make sure that our country has peace, so we're going to marry you to this <laughs> person that you don't know yeah. and you're going to have to take on all of their customs. Yeah. And it's even distressing in the minutiae where they just take her dog away. Yeah. Just take the dog away. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. And her reaction to that, and I found it fascinating as well that the... 
there's barely any dialogue with Marie for the first 30 minutes. Yeah, I really liked that. The first 30 minutes is my favourite part of the movie. Just that, um, you know, that kind of introduction to this new world and how daunting it is and yeah. how she's bemused before she completely kind of surrenders to the ennui of it. Um you know, there is a moment where she's like, this is ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> yes. But it's right. you're right in the sense that it is all on her. Like, you know, because um, like a big through line of the movie is that uh, the newly married couple aren't having sex. They're not consummating the marriage. And there's never a word against him. No. There's never, and there's never any sense of responsibility put on him. Like, come on, man. Like, do your duty to your country. It's all on her. Why yeah. aren't you attractive enough for him? Why aren't you seducing him? What's going on? You've yeah. got to do this. What is she, 17 years old? Well, she's like uh, 14, I think. 14 what? or something like that. I think she's... I think the well, the original Marie answer now, I think she was 14. Maybe that's uh, later in the... When we get down to that, if I can find it quickly. God. I think she was 14. And her husband was 15, I think, when they first got together. <laughs> so, you know, like... That's all fascinating uh, and awful. Awful. So, you know, you can understand him, pardon the mild pun, not rising to the challenge. <laughs> well, in that context, it may, yeah, that makes a little bit more sense. You know, how freaked out he is, like how clearly freaked out yeah. he is. There's a, there's a, it's interesting because there's little gossipy moments where people in the court, you know, in their, in their group sort of make suggestions that maybe he's gay or something like mm, that. Yeah. But otherwise it is responsibility to get onto it yeah. and you know we need an heir yeah. and it has to be a male like yeah. we need a male heir yeah. make yeah. Sh- make sure you get the chromosomes right yeah, yeah so she has some control over that it's yeah. crazy yeah uh, people love the anachronistic stylings of Quentin Tarantino but there were some criticisms of this movie for playing loose with facts and marrying modern music to the story what does this tell you about how people viewed the film like do we do we get into things uh, being incorrect and using the wrong music for a certain period if it's just followed up with some lashings of ultraviolence? <laughs> I think uh, I think people embrace it maybe with Tarantino because it's clearly like pulp uh, and it's like really going for it. Right. I don't actually... I, I I thought that the anachronistic music in this would be a lot more overt. I, I, it's... Because they, they, they use a lot of Aphex Twin in this movie. Yeah. Um, but it's Aphex Twin's beautiful piano pieces. Yeah. Um, so there's a slight bit of electronica from him. Um, I, I, I thought it was wonderful. I thought that was a great part oh, of the film. I loved it. But yeah, I don't... I don't uh, but it wasn't so egregious or so obvious to me that I could even understand why people would have an issue with it. Oh, it, it I know. But like, it, it, once again, it was going back and looking at things that people were saying. And yeah. it's like, well... We all loved it when cat people chimed in on yeah. glorious bastards. Yeah, yeah, we loved yeah, it, yeah. And, and it's great. Yeah. And but do you think it's because Tarantino's like because it, it has that pop styling and you know kind of anything go like you know you take for instance Inglorious Bastards you get mm. that scene where you're introduced to the bastards and mm. you get that freeze frame and hot pink lettering comes up of who they are and mm. so there's a lot more overt stuff whereas with this it's only the music that's um, I can't say the word anachronistic. Is yeah. that right? Uh, so in that sense, maybe people at the time found it more jarring. Well, you see, so you see the blue Converse shoes amongst all the boots, uh, all the shoes. Yeah, yeah right. So you, there are other, and even some some of the language and the way it's used. I, I just think, yeah, I think Coppola's just 
being more subtle about it. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I kind of feel like this is a bit pulpy in ways as well. It's just mm. not coming in with breaks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In, in in some of the shots, uh, it's funny that you say Kubrick uh, because I was also thinking a little bit Wes Anderson as well mm-hmm. in some of those uh, beautiful ways that they uh, were composed. Symmetry. Yeah. Wonderful symmetry. Yeah. I thought uh, Kirsten Dunst was pitch perfect in this movie mm. and you know I was as we talked about I was fascinated that she barely exchanged any dialogue for about 30 minutes mm. uh, but from that first moment that we see her yeah. I felt like I knew who this character was and, and where it was going and, and what did you think of her performance? I thought she was fantastic uh, she's definitely the for me the best part of the whole film mm. um, I didn't personally resonate very much with this movie um, but I was on her side and yeah. enjoyed her performance the, the entire way through what didn't you what, what aspects of it didn't you resonate with um, look because I, I have I have something in mind yeah. for me so I'm curious look uh, we've discussed this a lot before uh, a lot of the time a movie is uh, judged not by the movie but where you are in your head while you watch it and there's plenty of movies that I've watched the first time and gone eh and then watch the second time and it's you know broken my brain open Barry Lyndon is a great example of that first time I watched Barry Lyndon I was banging my head on the back of the seat for three and a half hours like I am bored out of my fucking mind right Uh, and then watched it the second time and I think it's Kubrick's best movie it's it's unbelievable Uh, First of all, I have <laughs> I have trouble with that period of history. I can't really resonate with all the you know the pomp and ceremony and right. all that. And I understand that this movie is um, you know somewhat critiquing that. But even still, that it's just that period of history. I just you know even it just it, doesn't interest. Well, it's just like come on, guys. You know, I often wonder were there the cynics of the age just standing around doing it all, thinking in their head, this is fucking ridiculous. This is so stupid. What are we doing with these powdered wigs and these ridiculous palatial palaces and just the the, the gaudy richness of it all? There's, I, I guess it's that kind of whatever, that old hippie in me that's blanching against that, kind of just, oh, gross. Oh, yeah, it's uh, awful. It's gross. Yeah. Disgusting. Um... And just, yeah, I, I, I guess maybe it's just that. And maybe I was just uh, a little bit... I, I found myself getting a little bit bored, especially towards the end. Right. I felt like there was kind of uh, a three-scene cycle that repeated for about 45 minutes of the movie, you know. King won't have sex with Marie Antoinette. Everyone judges Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette buys some silks and shoes to feel better. Right. Rinse, repeat. And I just felt after whatever, the three repetitions of that, I was like, I get it. Yeah. Let's... Let's slice this down. I think I would have enjoyed this movie a lot more if it was 20 to 30 minutes shorter. A bit punchier. Um, and I felt like there was an indulgence to it that comes from a very successful indie director being mm. given a shitload of money and mm. carte blanche. And I just... I felt like it had... You see that in a lot of directors. You know, mm. third, second or third movie, if they've really gotten successful, there's maybe a little bit of... Uh, if you just pull it back a little bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, I kind of didn't mind that because I felt like it uh, It was showing a, a glacial deterioration mm. in uh, the way things were going in, mm. in the world. So I know what you mean about that three-scene cycle, but uh, over time that... 
those scenes started to just be slightly off until the very end you have the very obvious scenes of her clapping at the theatre and no one joining in. Mm. And I liked that very much. And specifically the like I, I don't feel like the final dinner scene has any resonance if we haven't seen all of those dinner scenes mm. where the first time she has to sit there and she's overwhelmed by it and then mm. after a while it gets to a point where she's looking at her husband and going oh fuck what do you mean I have to have sex with you this is a disaster <laughs> and then eventually her just giving in and going wee yeah, yeah, and yeah. then finally them and I actually found that scene quite poignant when she reaches out and holds his hand and you know I felt like yeah. that was a complete cycle yeah, yeah, so yeah. I didn't mind that because I felt like things there was a definite rhythm to the to the repeat yeah yeah i i guess my main issue with it is the real life fact that and i will once again get to this a little bit later who gives a fuck about rich people that, you know, I didn't want to go there, but yeah, that's a lot, that was a lot of it for me as well. well. I was kind of sitting there going, is this movie trying to get me into the mindset of the average French citizen that wants to burn this fucking palace down? Because yeah. these people are awful. Right. And I, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting, like, it's a... People talk about movies, you know, very kind of like, oh, yeah, I watched a movie. But when you actually think about it, it's quite a big commitment to sit there for two hours with mm. the blood pooling in your butt, mm. staring at at a focal point two hours is a long time to just mm. stare at something and I think a lot, about halfway through I was really like am I really going to spend two hours with these fucking people like mm. I don't I get it I get that she's having a hard time with this whole process and it's all awful and everything but my god like the, the, the wealth and the just the ostentatiousness of it is not a place that I want to really spend much time in um so, yeah, the whole I don't really care about rich people thing really, really resonated with me. Oh, without a doubt. Look, and... <clears throat> rich, so, rich, rich rich people and their problems. And, yes. their, and, and, the, and their self-created problems of, the you know, like, oh, you did not bow correctly. Right. Oh, God. Well, just skipping ahead a little bit, there were, there were two famous women that this... Uh, there were two types of famous women that this movie reminded me of. And this one might be showing my age a little bit, but I felt like there was a, a Princess Diana kind of vibe oh, right. to what was going on yep. from... I remember very much when that romance first started because mm. it was reported everywhere and I was young and saw it all in the news play yep. out and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I felt like there was... I'm not saying a direct parallel, but I felt like there was a reflection of some of that. Sure. And the other part of it, and this is how I... This is how I kind of got my head into that because my first reaction is to, you know, eat the rich. <laughs> but uh, the way I looked at it is the film comes out in 2006 at the height of Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, and uh, this is the end of uh, the era of Britney Spears mm -hmm. before everything begins to crumble for her. Mm. And I think Coppola is looking at the way the media and the way we... We, we really looked at those women as a society mm. and wanted them to be a specific thing. Yeah. And then when they were that thing, we shit on it. Oh, and not I, so that's why... Yeah. That, so that's how I enjoyed this film. I didn't look at it as... Uh, I, I, I tried to watch it exactly how I think Coppola wanted us to watch it, which was it's specifically about how we build someone up mm -hmm. and then turn on them for 
leaning into what we wanted them to be. That's fascinating. I did not think of that at all. And I think that that is absolutely correct. I think that's absolutely correct because I did find myself, you know, by the fucking fifth scene of shoe shopping, I was very much like, I don't know if I have a lot of sympathy anymore for this story because it's just a rich person, obviously in a shitty situation, but about halfway through, she doesn't seem to be tortured by it anymore, especially once, you know, she has child and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but I think that's that's there's something to that very much because there is the um, there is this societal need. Have you, have you ever seen the South Park episode about Britney Spears? No. It's one of the most savage takedowns of this culture ever. Right. Uh, where basically the whole storyline is that um, for the for the harvest of the corn to come through, every cycle society chooses one young starlet to build up and then just absolutely tear down in a sacrificial way right. so that the corn grows. <laughs> um, and it's like, it's, it's actually... It's one of those few... There's probably a half a dozen South Parks that... It's not even funny. It's just horrific because it's so true. Yeah. Um, and they called the savageness of Britney, you know, 10 years before this documentary yeah. came out. Um, and there's so much truth to that. So, I, actually, now you make me want to watch the movie again with that in mind. Yeah. I think it's more... I think it's a more fascinating view especially when you consider how young she is and you think of those women who were regardless of whether you like them or not or the mistakes they made or didn't make Mm. and the opportunities that they had etc from a media point of view Mm. from a very young age this is who you are and we're loving it and we're taking photos of you and you're still trying to find your way regardless of whether i like you you are still a young person trying to work out where you're going oh, totally. and, and then eventually the news cycle turns and someone new comes along and we turn on that person that's it, one of the things I'm not a Justin Bieber fan mm. in any way mm-hmm. I you know I'm indifferent to him but I'm not a uh, but if you ask me to take a take a stance I'm not a fan but the thing that That's I appropriate, Justin. Yeah, no, no, no. I know some people who quite like his music, and yeah, but you know, not but, a lot of forty-seven-year-old men, right? No, you're incorrect. I actually really, know, yeah, I know. Like when I worked in commercial radio, which was awful, except mm. for, but there were heaps of. Like I made a, a, like a, I made a flippant remark, and they were like, "No, no, this album's really good, and if you listen to it, blah blah blah." And I just as someone who wanted to maintain a level of integrity refused to listen and told them they were all fucked. Yeah. So... <laughs> no, you're, you're right. I don't know if it's made for us. That's the thing. No. Like, at the height of Bieber fame, when Koshy, you know, ah, what's Justin Bieber up to? It's like, dude, you're a 50-year-old man. Why yeah. are you talking about Justin Bieber? Yeah, that's like... It's not for you. Yeah. That's like... Uh, so I was shown some Machine Gun Kelly in his latest album, and I looked and I went, I can... If I had a kid, yeah. I'd be wrapped if they were into this. Yeah, sure. But, it's not, but I'm 48. Exactly. And thank you for saying 47 That's before. Right, I appreciate that. <laughs> but the, uh, the the thing that gave me some empathy towards Bieber is when I saw a, a story uh, about him on, like, I don't know, like 60 Minutes or something like that, and he's like 16, 17 at a mall making an appearance, and there are grown women mm-hmm. who are our age fucking screaming over oh. him and you go well no wonder he's had some setbacks because that's insane dude i have nothing but empathy for these people there was a moment when justin bieber was just about to pop or maybe he just popped he's like whatever he was 13 14 yeah a child yeah and he was on sunrise 
the morning show in I think it's Australia wide, maybe right. just Sydney, I don't know. No, no. Uh, and Koshi took him up to the big window that overlooks Martin Place to go like, check out all your fans. And the mall is just, you know, thousands deep of people screaming mm. off their heads. And I, it, the camera cuts to Bebar, and this was what, 10, 12 years yeah. ago? A long time ago. And I remember even then, when I was at the height of my like cynicism and fuck all these people, rah, 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 I saw a glimmer of fear in that kid's eyes, and my heart fucking bled for him. Like, you, this is child abuse. Right. He's a child. What are you doing? Yeah. Putting him in this position, he has... An adult is not equipped to deal with this, let alone a child. Mm. And then you fucking want to give him shit when he, you know, is a bit fucked up on meth or whatever, or he said some weird thing, or he does some weird thing. He's got no gauge of fucking reality. Yeah. I mean, it's the same with the, the whole Tom Cruise thing. I mean, Tom Cruise is obviously very questionable with the Scientology stuff and everything. But what happens to a human mind when from the age of 19, you haven't met one person who doesn't hyperventilate when they meet you? Like, oh, of course yeah. you go insane. Yeah, that- complete messianic complex how, how much of a messianic complex do you have when you walk off stage after a great gig like, like I'm, I'm the fucking best <laughs> like I've got one now just because you're paying me attention like it's <laughs> it's <laughs> it's all happening but that's that's also my uh, you know that's how I feel when you go back and you watch interviews with the Beatles when mm. they're like I was never a Paul McCartney fan and then I watched uh, the doco that came out a few years ago and I think it's set around 63, 64 mm. and they're somewhere overseas being interviewed at a press conference and someone like a, a grown ass journalist has a crack at uh, them about something but anyway it doesn't matter what it was about or exactly what was said but Paul McCartney answered in such an articulate and beautiful way and I'm sitting there going he's 23 mm-hmm. like he and that's that's not 23 by our standards mm-hmm. that's 23 back then mm-hmm. and it's such a measured response it kind of shifted my stance on yeah. him a little bit and yeah. I, I think one of the I think one of the great fears that you have in life is to die before you have an opportunity to right the mistakes you make of your youth. Mm. And you want to be able to live long enough that you can go back and go, oh, yeah, you know what? I I wasn't on top of things because I was young and Mm. I was an idiot and Mm. I didn't understand Mm. what was going on, Mm. whether that's a just reconnecting with a friend or, yeah. you know, nothing. I don't think it's anything really major, but you look at, you know, you look at all the psychological shit that a John Lennon went through who, when you read his stuff and you go, man, that guy is complicated and I don't approve of this and this and this, but this is what he was experiencing and no one had experienced it before totally and no he prison. was not built for it and uh-huh. it felt like he was working his way through and who knows what would have happened. Oh, after totally. 1980 like maybe he would have been you know the the person that he was always meant to be but there's all that, also the fear that you know he and Ted Nugent put out an album together so <laughs> <laughs> but I, but you know what I mean it's just yeah, yeah and um, yeah, yeah I mean the the, the 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 judging that happens of celebrity and I'm look I can't I cannot believe I'm here defending celebrity because I'm no fan of it no but uh, you know the piling on and the judgment and everything for a way of life that none of us has any idea what that is like mm. you know uh, to not be able to walk down the fucking street. And especially these days, mm. it's not like in the past where it was like, you know, it was, you know, hey, look over here, a flashbulb goes off. Now it's, you know, some guy following you down the street with an iPhone going, hey, hey, 
hey, hey, trying to get a reaction out of you so that mm. he can sell it to TMZ for fucking $10,000. Mm. It's just, it's appalling. I can't even, I, I could not imagine a worse reality than being famous. And you see it with young YouTube stars, that Logan Paul guy mm. that popped up big, you know, again, it happened, I think, when he was 19 or whatever. And he went fucking insane. Of course he went insane. Who yeah. wouldn't go insane? Well, now he's boxing. Yeah. And doing a pretty good job at it. Really? Too. Yeah, funnily enough. Yeah, right. He's got a lot of rage to uh, get yeah. out of his system. <laughs> yeah, it turns, <laughs> turns out uh, that is a fact. Yeah, and the, the way that we viewed fame and celebrity and now it's, you know, so some of the most famous people in the world we've never heard of. Mm-hmm. And so that's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's not talking about... Whether you go looking for it or not, it's the machine that is behind it and everything that uh, kicks in. And for the most part, I really like the character of Marie Antoinette Mm. in this film Mm. because she is just a kid Mm. who loves her dog Mm. and obviously gets put into this situation where she has all this responsibility thrust upon her without anyone that ever any point just sort of saying what do you want what do you like yeah who are you into are you okay yeah (laughs) do you want to do a podcast like nobody do you like these clothes what would you like would you like your dog back yeah maybe you'd just like your dog yeah i think that's really really exemplified in that it's probably my um other than the opening shot my favorite scene of the film is when she gets out of bed and there's all these fucking people around and they take her pajamas right. off and she's like I'm cold yeah. and just each new person coming in going oh no 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 they have a higher rank than the right. last person they're the ones to dress you right. and there's no consideration for the fact that she's naked in front of a room full of strangers yeah. shivering you know the whole like n- her comfort is never taken into account never taken into account and that scene is important for setting up very much how she'll be treated for the rest of this movie but yeah. also it's really funny and Judy Davis yeah, yeah. is really funny yeah, yeah, yeah. in that scene yeah. as well she never over it or anything yeah, 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 yeah. when the next person walks in you're like you can almost hear Marie just like you know what fuck it yeah. I'll, I'll put on some shorts yeah. <laughs> this will be fine uh, there is little historical proof that Marie Antoinette said let them eat cake although uh, I didn't know this it actually translates more accurately as let them eat brioche oh so bread yeah yeah, I, just, right. like that. I find that more offensive. I find brioche to be a little bit blah. You don't like brioche? <laughs> I don't know. Anytime I get a burger and it's, it's a brioche decadent. bun. Yeah, it's like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> From the western suburbs. <laughs> Who do you think I am, mate? <laughs> um, so folklore scholars have found similar tales in other parts of the world with details slightly differing. So a 16th century German tale has a noble woman ask why they don't eat Sweetbread. Mm-hmm. So that's fascinating. Right. Doesn't this misappropriation of uh, this famous quote really sum up the story Copler is telling here? Yeah. I, honestly, man, I'm, I'm completely fascinated by this take on that you've got, and it's made me completely have to reassess my opinion of the movie. Right. Because I came in really like, I'm a bit bored, whatever. But I, I think you're bang on with this, um, that it is a deconstruction of modern fame and right. the way and the way the public turns yeah and, and the rumor mill that starts and you know and the glee and the delight in tearing the person down yeah um, oh it's it's awful as well and you, you know you look at that scene where she starts clapping when you're not supposed to mm. clap and the sycophantic way the audience joins in yes 
But nobody looks at the performers who she's clapping to. They yes. look at her yes. and clap her. Yes, yes, yes. So they still... They, they follow her lead, but they don't get it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And it's literally a little girl being really impressed with what she saw and wanting yeah. everyone to know. Yeah. And the sad thing of when they don't join in is that she's been shielded from the real, real world to such an extent that she just doesn't quite understand why this has happened. Mm. Yeah. What changed? And that's how fame... Yeah, okay, well, she- here we go. Take photos of me. Well, why are you not taking photos of me? Yeah. Oh, hang on. Why is this album... Not so. Why is everyone getting angry about this movie? Yeah, and the brutality of how quickly it happens, you know, that... uh, That's why art's so fucking impotent in so many ways now, because people are fucking scared to roll the dice. Like, look at fucking... Like, everyone talks about how brilliant Scorsese is, Mm. and I love Scorsese, but the Mm. reason Scorsese's brilliant is because he fucking made Age of Innocence, and he made... What was it? Mulan. <laughs> and yeah, and fucking, last, last Temptation of Christ like, and all these crazy fucking movies so that got every, him in a lot of trouble. Yeah, and everyone says, oh, fucking Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and all these hyper-masculine and good fellas mm. and fucking departed, man. Mm-mm-mm-mm. But that guy is an artist. Yeah. And he goes and makes a Merchant Ivory film or he makes Hugo or stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, and yeah. and who's, who's rolling the dice next? Like, which... You know, yeah. I mean, it's really in, in in the world of film. It's really only a twenty four. I don't know if you know that oh. um, uh, that uh, not production company uh, distributor. Yeah, uh, that they are really at the leading edge of this kind of stuff. They're making stuff that's really challenging, right? Uh, but it's you know low to mid budget stuff. I think the a. I mean, you even think about something like Lord of the Rings. That was a like. I mean, it's a given now, but yes. that was a fucking. That was a major gamble back yes. in the day. Yes, you know this. That was the first. First of the, the 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 trilogy and the you know making three films at once and all this stuff that really all those people's careers would have been fucked if that hadn't worked. Oh, and it just happened to work because it's brilliant and it's well made and the production value is beautiful and everything. Imagine if no one goes to see that first one. You've got the other two sitting totally, there. Totally, um, that's yeah. kind of what worked against the second and third Matrix, which they made at the same time. Yeah. And after the second Matrix, everyone was like, I "Feel like maybe you." don't really have a handle on yeah, the yeah, movie yeah, that yeah, you made the yeah, first yeah, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. In terms of those big uh, big dice rolls, uh, yeah, there does seem to be a um, a fear now of that. Um, and just how savage, you know. I mean, God, if the if the, if the critical reception was bad in the days of Britney Spears, I mean, that was before the fucking internet was, you know, a full-fledged force in everyone's life. Now right. it's like, I mean, you know, if a movie doesn't make $100 billion in the first three minutes that it's out, it's a fucking failure. Oh, yeah. Like, whoa. Yeah. It's funny to... It's funny to hear these movies talked about, which are talked about as whether they're... Uh, failures or whatever and then you look and see how much money they made or you see you know it's uh, once again we've said this many times Mm. there is a lack of nuance in the conversation Mm. about anything and this is how everything gets reduced to totally but the fact that the average movie goer now talks about 
how much money the movie... What, who, cares? Uh, who cares? What are you talking about? Did right. you like the movie? Yes. Because if you liked the movie, that's all that really matters. Does it matter? You know, so many... I mean, you know, everyone reveres Kubrick, and mm. for a good reason. Kubrick's movies are fucking great. I mean, it's just so trite to even say it. Mm. But very few of them were well-received when they came out. Oh, yeah. Like they, yeah. Because they're really challenging, and they're really... You know, remember when Eyes Wide Shut came out? Yeah. People fucking hated that movie. Hated it. And 20 years later, everyone's like, oh, actually, it's a really great movie. It yeah. just took us a while to fucking catch on yeah because it's so loaded and you know um you know the tom and nicole thing and everything um the only reason i have any interest in the movies that the directors that i like make what their uh, budget is Mm. or what what money they make Mm. is that i just want them to still be given money to make Make movies yeah that's that's one of the hilarious things about and we know this because we think about it but most people don't and not that they should but the 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 story coming out of america about tenet was that it was a failure because it only made 59 million there in in covid but it made 350 throughout the world and it's like everyone else because like just because your country doesn't know how to fucking deal with COVID yeah. doesn't mean. Well, in context is everything, right? If there's right. no fucking cinemas open, then the movie can't make any money, right? But it's um, you know, but it's bo- but the, but the but to report that it completely failed mm. is is incorrect because mm. it actually did well in the places that it, it could do well. Mm. That's actually that's actually the 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 narrative there. Mm-mm-mm. And if box office is a mark of quality, then we're fucked. We're more fucked than even you and I realise because, you know, the Terminator franchise is one of the biggest money makers ever. That god-awful, soulless, dead-eyed Lion King remake was a huge success. Right. I tried watching it. And it was just unbearable. What, what, what is even happening? These right. fucking awful, photorealistic animals with no expression in their face. Simba's grieving the death of his father and there's no sadness in his eyes or anything. It's this, like, puppet-like mouth. Dad! Yeah. Dad, man, oh, that made fucking a billion dollars. Right, awful. Transformer movies, yeah, they've made a lot of money. Yeah, of course. Like stacks, terrible. So the story uh, focuses on Marie and a loveless marriage, uh, and it, it's funny. You know why? Why do we project such high expectations on women, and then? punish them when they don't live up to them like and is that just a is that just a women thing or is that is is that a man thing in in modern times as well do we do that as much with guys no uh i i look god that's huge that's uh i think that's that that goes back thousands of years yeah i think that's just an ingrained thing in society it's ownership isn't it it's yeah it's it's i mean I, that that was the thing that i kept thinking last night like this is you know she's property yeah that's it like there, there's like and again that goes back to like this no autonomy no hey are you okay do you like this it's like that's irrelevant you right. are you know, you are part of a dowry. Like this is, um, yeah. I think the the expectation is just all part of that kind of, um, you know, paternalistic, patriarchal culture, all the rest. Um, again, as I said, there's not one moment where there's one moment in the whole movie where the doctor says to the king, "So is your body responding right. to her?" But there's no like, hey, dude, what the fuck? Oh, you got was- this beautiful woman in your bed. What's going on? Why aren't you doing anything? Well, there is also the brother who comes into town who has yes. a chat to him. 
Yes, that's which right. Which is a really funny scene while he's being spoken to like that and that phallic-looking elephant trunk is... Yeah. is <laughs> pouring at him. Pouring at yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad you said pouring. I was going to say a much worse word. <laughs> but it's such a funny scene. By, by the way, yeah. what the fuck is going on with Schwartzman? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's, he's very good. He's so doughy and useless. Mm. And But I also, once again, I'm not equating this with the historical accuracy because this is I'm equating this with the movie that Mm. we watched but you do look at him and you go ah you're just a young guy who's never really been given any sort of proper training on how to deal with the world and now you've ended up or choice and ended up in a position where you're in charge and you are listening to the wrong people and you are making the wrong decisions Mm. based on those people and none of them are going to really weather this the way you're going to weather it and then you know that scene at the end where it's funny as I said he's so doughy but at the end there's kind of a a backbone to him like there's a stoicness to him yeah yeah, and he stays there and that that final scene of them having that final dinner yeah I kind of felt an empathy for him oh totally and you know like obviously he has more autonomy than Marie Antoinette does but he is also a prisoner of the system I think Mm. it's telling that the moment he visibly falls in love with her is when she transgresses and she Mm. applauds at the opera yes that's the moment where he ticks over and he's like oh I like you yeah you know Uh, it's up until then she's just you know she seems kind of this burden uh, maybe because he sees her as emblematic of this entire system that he's trapped in. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I, I thought it was very telling that when she starts to applaud, all of a sudden he's got eyes for her. Right. <laughs> it's also funny the way that the king's, you know, his father's mistress is, is treated and, mm. and, you know, the way they consider that she's acting uncouth. Mm. Um, meanwhile, all of these people with their sniper comments mm. in, in the corner are in many ways much worse. She's just really honest. Yeah, she's just being herself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I really hated that um, that overweight guy sitting in the corner with potentially his wife, potentially his mum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, oh. Did you hear her belch? Oh, I hated him so much. Yeah. He reminded me of a TV executive that I will mention <laughs> when I stop recording. <laughs> Sorry, everyone listening. Sometimes you just have to keep some comments uh, off the podcast. <laughs> but if you see me uh, at a gig or something and you ask me who it is, I'll tell you who it is. <laughs> Because then I can deny it if you go and tell anyone else. <laughs> uh, Coppola's talent to take locations and use them as a means to define her characters is breathtaking in this mm. movie. And, and what did you make of the locations in uh, this film? Beautiful, beautiful. The, the, as I said, the first half an hour is my favourite part of the film. And a lot of that was the, uh, the carriage rides through the forest and... Uh, you know, that um, tent that they'd set up in the woods and be- yeah. very, yeah, very beautiful. And also the stuff at the end with her, um, I think, I, I guess it was her private residence or something. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the fingers trailing through the grass and all that stuff. Yeah. Suddenly it's like a Terrence Malick movie. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was extremely pleased to, uh, it, by the way, the way they used the location, it really kind of gave a sense of being a, a queen bee with all these drones mm. fussing around. Mm. Uh, it was great. Was that actually the Palace of Versailles? Yes. It yeah, they did a lot of filming I on location. So. <laughs> like, if this, is a, if this is a studio set, like you have out this. of control. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was extremely pleased to not see the beheading. 
but instead the palace ruined after the mob have run through it. Do you think male directors would have shown that kind of restraint? I feel like we probably would have gotten... Yeah, yeah. Like, we, even, <laughs> like, I, even up until the beheading, I feel like... Yeah, I feel like we would have got the, you know, the, the dirt-smeared face of Marie Antoinette as she's led up to the, you know, the guillotine and, you know, yeah. you would have got the... Oh, and it would yeah. have cut to black. Cut to black. <laughs> yeah. Boo. Or if it was Tarantino, it would have been, you know, she painted would... black or something by the Rolling Stones as her head flies off in slow motion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Little boy catches it, runs off, <laughs> kicks a goal with it. <laughs> France wins the World Cup. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so it's funny. I, I've never seen uh, Barry Lyndon. Mm. It's a it's a movie that is uh, uh, a couple of times I've gone to see it at the cinema. I've always it's been one of those ones that I've gone to see for the cinema, and then I've ended up having a gig or it's I've ended up being interstate. It's a monster of a movie. Yeah, it's a monster. It's uh, uh, and, and I would highly recommend first time there's certain movies Lawrence of Arabia yes there's certain movies you have to see it at the cinema yes um, and Barry Lyndon is holy shit yeah the second time I watched it I, I watched it with my friend who's a big Kubrick guy and I kind of went in with this real like oh god three and a half hours and it's slow yeah I don't know if you know the, the whole concept of Barry Lyndon is that every shot is supposed to be like a gallery image of a painting yeah so people hardly even move it's just locked off shots, maybe slowly zooming in. Um, but when you can get into that headspace, it is breathtaking. Right. Just on a filmmaking level, I think, and that's when I say, I think it's Kubrick's best. The second time I watched it, I was just like, how are you even doing this? Right, right. Uh, so, yeah, and that's why I do want to see it, like mm. at the Hayden Orpheum yeah, or something yeah. like that. Next uh, time it's on, we'll go see it. Okay, that sounds good. The Oh, by the way, there's uh, having spoken about my ambivalence towards Lord of the Rings. I think there's another they viewing of showing it. Lord of the Rings. So if we can make that happen, I right. would be up for that if you want to so teach me the errors of my way. <laughs> and I'd be, I'm, I'm up for it. It's fucking wonderful. Everyone knows that I would rather love things than be indifferent or dislike. Yeah. Uh, but so I was thinking a lot of A Clockwork Orange through this film uh-huh. and... And Coppola has admitted being influenced by Kubrick, amongst others, when mm. directing uh, Marie Antoinette. But like this, uh, like A Clockwork Orange, do you think people miss the point that this is a satire and ultimately poignant at the end? Do you think people just kind of do watch it and think, oh, well, she's rich, she's fine, what's wrong with her? Yeah, I think uh, I think this is a, a movie, and I'm and I'm critiquing my own viewing of it last night when I say this uh, I think this is a movie that if you don't lock in with it yeah it's easy to kind of just be like oh here we go again just yep. buy more shoes she's really very rich I get it yeah uh, yeah I think uh, but all, all movies that move at a slower pace and I don't say that in a critical way because no. I love slow burn movies yeah uh, if you're not on board it's easy for the mind to wander Yes. See, and you know, if your mind wanders for 10 minutes and then you suddenly snap back, it's like, wait, what? Oh, okay, oh, this yeah. they're in the palace, okay. Yeah. Uh, and I think that happens even more so these days, you know, oh, yeah. like especially with people being distracted by their phones or... Oh, it's getting worse. Do yeah. you know the new trend on TikTok is uh, to listen to 10-second clips of songs? I was, into, I was, I was a kid was uh, listening to um, songs on TikTok... And after about two minutes, I was like, can you just land on a song? This is schizophrenic. Right. I was like, no, this is what we do now. Just 10 second clips. 
just this like bifurcated, shattered, splintered consciousness. Right. And in that moment, it's like, whoa, like the wiring is going into your head now. Right. If you can't listen to a song, a two and a half minute song, yeah. you're never going to be able to watch... Uh, I mean, forget Barry Lyndon. That's never going to happen. But you're not even going to be able to watch Mad Max Fury Road without getting bored. Right. Crazy. It's all Sesame Street's fault, isn't it? With the quick editing. Isn't that where all of this started? Uh, uh, Sometimes I try to, you know, I try to keep an eye on things that kids are into Mm. and kind of look at them. And it's funny, the, uh, like the TikTok dancers... That and the miming, and you watch it, and you see these people with uh, these kids with tens of thousands of followers, and I'm watching it going, this miming is awful. Terrible. Like Millie Vanilli would be rolling around <laughs> in their graves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this, it's so bad, and it's just you know, dude. In lieu of you know, they say that you're truly old when. It's not just that you don't understand the youth culture. You're actively horrified by the youth culture. Right. That's when you're officially like you're, you're, you're in your past your autumn years. Uh, one of the biggest YouTube stars is a seven-year-old boy in America. Mm. This kid gets like millions of dollars a year from revenue from YouTube. And all he does is open toys. Just opens toys right. and plays with the toy. So... Uh, I, that is, if that makes me old to find that horrific and appalling, great. I'm ready for the retirement home. That is fucked up. Right. What are you talking about? Where's there's no art. There's no. That is the literal definition of content. Yeah. You know, I despise that fucking word, content. But that is that's content. Yes. Yeah. What is he doing? Just switching camera on and opening a toy. Yeah, that's funny. I. I really don't have an emotional response to that either way. I'm more horrified by a friend who works in radio. I called him and said, gave him, like, I'll come up with ideas and I'll say, I, there's nowhere I can use this, so if you'd like to use it. And uh, what's, a, what's a movie you saw once that you didn't like, that you saw later and then went, oh, th- I actually watched this incorrectly, So which is stuff that we've talked about mm, before. And this was off the back of... Ocean's 12 which I remember enjoying it when I saw it and then everyone just kind of seemed to shit on it and I think I just eventually eased into shitting on it as mm. well not, not even actively shitting on it but just thought of it as shit and then I rewatched it recently and I had such a good time yeah. I thought it was a really yeah. it was like no 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 this is this is just fun mm. this is just a fun film and and why were we angry three three years later after the last film that was fun this is this is fun. Yeah. Something shifted where we went, oh, well, now that's too much fun, you know? <laughs> and so anyway, so I made that suggestion and he changed it to... So the, so my talk topic was, ring up and let us know a movie you once saw that you didn't like, that you saw again and realised that you loved. And he changed it to, ring up and let us know a movie you, you once saw. <laughs> um... And I was like, oh. and I was, and I said to him, oh, I, that's what? And he said, oh, no, 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 your idea is actually just a bit too difficult for people at home, you know, getting their kids ready for A movie you once and, saw. Oh, yeah. yeah, I once saw Star Wars. Thanks, mate. I once saw The Matrix. Thanks, mate. So, the, what? so 
I so I should, I'm speaking out of turn here. This is unfucking believable. So that's what I get. So if that kid opening toys is making him money, I'm I'm actually more fine with that than that. Yeah, that, sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not, it's all awful. It's just it's, gradients of shit, you know. No, I know, I know. But it's like it's like a kid opening toys. I can like, oh yeah, no, I can kind of you know remember feeling excited about that kind of thing. I'm more horrified by this. So. <laughs> So I'm speaking way out of turn, but I've, I've kept enough back from the listeners and I want everyone to enjoy this story because... So my friend works on a radio show and uh, some, of the, some of the hosts have just been a bit blue, right? Just been a bit blue in their humour. Yeah. And it's breakfast radio. Yeah. Anyway, Wait, are we talking blue, like bawdy blue or like 21st century blue, 2021 blue where, you know, everything's problematic? I think a little bit bawdy blue. Okay, right. I think that's the I think that's the definition that he mm-hmm. was getting at. But anyway, they do a segment where <laughs> commercial radio man, mm-hmm. fucking hell, where you just ring up and we're, we're, it, this is the letter, and we're going to throw a whole lot of things that you have to say what that letter could be. So you know, uh, in in a certain amount of time, that's how many points you win. So right. the letter is C. Uh, name a vegetable, carrot, you know. All that kind of Jeez. stuff, right? And then what, someone, what someone. Uh, so the question was uh, <laughs> for this contestant: <laughs> uh, name a body, name a part of the body, beginning with C. Cunt, cock. So this woman said clit, <laughs> and they kept going and they ignored it. And then at the end, one of the hosts, uh, my mate, was like, "Just ignore it because it's it's a contestant. So you just ignore it and just keep moving forward. That's what you're meant to do." Yeah. And uh, then when they were going back over the scores, one of the hosts said, "Ah, <laughs> oh, interesting answer for naming a body part. I guess you could have used that also for something that you'd eat. <laughs> and my mate was furious about that. And I couldn't stop laughing because all I could think was, I don't want to have a job that I get upset about yeah. something that is be honest in from my perspective mildly funny for commercial radio yeah of course <laughs> and and not like yeah god like, they didn't say anything no and you, most most kids wouldn't have picked up on that yeah of most course. adults wouldn't have, like if you use your theory that we can't put up the topic what's a movie you once saw that you didn't like that you saw again and you did like because it's too difficult yeah. to get their heads around yeah guess what no one's picking up on that because that's an answer to a question in a fucking game that is whatevs, no big oops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's and that answer or that joke's probably come like fifty five seconds later. But I, like, you know, I'm moderately intelligent. I guess I can't think of a body part beginning with C that isn't cock or clit or clavicle. Clavicle, I don't know. Cornea, cranium, like, and they're not answers that an FM radio listener is. Oh, cranium. Yeah, <laughs> of course yeah. it was always going to go to something weird. Yeah, what are yeah. you talking about? Yeah, look, see, look, look where you were. <laughs> yeah, it's like what is there is nothing. What's a movement you do with a body part that begins with F? Uh, <laughs> oh no, I can't believe it went blue. I can't believe it. <laughs> can't believe they said that. Oh my oh, Jesus Lord. Christ! Anyway, fucking. This fucking world. Oh, I, I seem to be swearing like the 
the vampires in the TV series of what we do in the shadows. And I'm always like, these fucking guys. (laughs) Um, Just a few more questions to finish up with this. Um, In the end, Marie's female friendships are much more important than her relationships with men. Rose Byrne is. (laughs) Oh, my God. Rose Byrne (laughs) comes in so hot. Mm. uh, And I mean hot as in on fire, Mm -hmm. you know, and she just, you can immediately understand why Marie turns around and goes, yep, 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 that's my friend. Yep, totally. I'm hanging out with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why why are movies that concentrate on female friendships so hard to sell in the mainstream? Like, why are they less interesting than male friendships? Is it just because that's what we've, because it's been dominated by men and therefore that's what we've been given a a healthier serve of over the years? Well, not healthy, but a bigger serve of. Yeah, totally. Totally. And, you know, I think, uh, I think up until, you know, whatever, X amount of years ago, like the, you know, I think movies were, mainly made for and directed to that male demographic of mm. 18 to 40 or whatever it is. Mm. Um, but every, well, not, not every, but I've seen a lot of um, movies about female relationships. Obviously, I'm not a female, but they were completely engaging and wonderful. There's a movie called Mustang, a Turkish movie about five sisters, and it's one of the most beautiful movies just about relationships mm. and connection that I've ever seen. Um, you know, I think I guess it goes back to that whole, you know, that Roger Ebert thing of um, uh, film is an empathy machine, you know, and you should be watching movies about experiences that are not your own yes. uh, and not just completely reinforcing the same story over yes. and over and over again because you start to recognise the universality in all of these things. And, yeah. you know, obviously there's... I mean, again, I'm not a female having a female relationship and I assume that there's nuances and differences to a male-on-male relationship, but they can't be that much different, right? It's just two people connecting. Yeah, absolutely. Like, (laughs) the uh, one of my favourite TV series in the last few years has been My Brilliant Friend, who Mm. that's two young girls who are very different, but, you know, are attracted to each other as pals and Mm. the way they grow and push against each other and feed off each other. And it's Mm. like, I don't know. It's just like, I, I, I guess I understand how this has happened, but I, I'm just so, it's, it's just confusing to me as well because it's still fascinating. I think when you look at the history of, you know, uh, especially, you know, mod, uh, mainstream American film, which is basically what we're all raised on. You know, you look at the 70s and it's all that kind of like either hyper masculine, you know, or it's, you know, the, the, the broken man realizing something about himself. And in the 80s, you got all the action hero stuff. Mm. Uh, like, it, you can really see the trend, mm. you know. Um, you know, I, I'm not one of these people that thinks that every single movie ever made should pass the Bechdel test, but. I can see why that philosophy exists. Yes. Because there is a real trend of just... um, There's a a really interesting uh, thing I saw uh, that Pixar introduced. They wrote an algorithm 
This sounds very robotic, and I was kind of ugh when I first heard it, but when I actually read about it, it's it's excellent. Uh, It was uh, one of the script editors on staff was kind of looking over their movies and just going, oh, there's like... Uh, that's right. They were making Cars Two or Cars Three mm. or something, and there's like they were like, "Oh, there's not one female car in the entire movie." Mm. Um, you know, not a main character, not a bit character, not a background character. They're all male characters, and just that kind of ingrained thing of mm. just, oh yeah, like he 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 him 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 him. Um, and so they've introduced a thing uh, that splits it right down the middle, fifty fifty. Right. Um, and if you actually look at the recent slate of movies, the like probably the last four or five, you really do see it. Right. Um, and that's what you have to do. You have to make the effort to, course. and then it will just become And then it's natural. the norm. Yeah. I, and I, that's the thing. I think this, this idea of like just the male story has, was just the norm for so long mm. that it took people to question it, deconstruct it, and create a new norm. And then, you know, I mean, it already doesn't feel like there's people railing against it. You know, I mean, you look mm. back on that whole Mad Max Fury Road thing when all mm. those fucking idiots were freaking out. Fury Road stars. Like, really? Is your right. grasp on your masculinity that shallow and that fragile that a woman in a Mad Max movie is making you have a fucking psychotic breakdown? Mate. You idiot. What's fucking wrong with you? It was one of the funniest things I encountered after that film. And then all those people voted for Trump and I did not find it as funny. <laughs> the... So I uh, just very briefly, I, I had not had this thought before, but uh, Will was telling me on his podcast recently that everyone in Mad Max Fury Road has some sort of disability that they're cut, you know, were a scarring or something yeah, right, that they're okay. always showing, and that the theory is that Max is deaf. Right. And that's made me, even though I just rewatched it, because uh, my mate and I are going to do an exploitation uh-huh. segment on this uh, podcast, right. but it's so frustrating because I just watched it and now I want to rewatch it and keep that in mind because there are these, he mumbles a lot. There's a lot of him not quite reacting the right way. Mm. There's a point where she fires the gun right near his head and he has that weird yes. sound effect. Right, right, right. Yeah. That, oh, man, I think that movie's so fucking... I mean, it's obviously so trite to say it, but what a fucking movie. Uh, yeah, it's like sometimes so things great. are good. It's so great. Yeah, yeah. It's okay to say <laughs> things are good. It actually took me, again, you talk about a second rewatch. It took me the second time to fully reckon with how great it was. I think the first time I was just like pinned to the back of my seat. Like, Ugh, oh, yeah. Jesus Christ. Like, yeah. just let me catch my breath, please. Right. And on the second time, when it was like, okay, now I know the now I know the tone of this, and you know, back to Marie Antoinette, you know, that's I think I would enjoy it more in the second time because I'm aware now of this is a languid, yes, slower movie. It takes its time. Yeah. You know, I think all I knew about the movie was oh, it uses anachronistic music, so I was like, oh, cool, it'll be a fucking you know thumping. You know, moving Soundtrack. at a clip. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't. So, you know, of course, my brain is like, mm, it's not what I thought it was. <laughs> it does happen. <laughs> the There's so many great scenes as well, like when Kirsten Dunst with uh, Jamie Dornan, is it Dornan or Dorman? Uh, where it's sort of like, it's, it's kind of the first time that someone looks at her yeah. and finds her attractive. Mm. And you can understand why she... Yeah balls for that and then you know that great scene of her just laying back in the grass like oh my god yeah i've just experienced something that i thought was beyond my ability yeah. to experience yeah. you yeah. know yeah. Yeah. yeah uh so a few quick more questions uh would you 
enjoy this as a TV series. I feel like it could actually, like if you could make The Crown and things like that, you could, yeah. you know, you'd have to, like, you'd have to put in different kinds of rhythm. Yeah. But as an idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's a historical epic. Uh, I mean, it probably wouldn't be one that I would watch just again because it goes back to that kind of my lack of interest in this historical period. Yeah. But if it kind of kept a lot of those um, anachronisms, yeah, I mean, yeah. It'd be very interesting. Would this movie have been better if Tom Hardy was forced to wear a mask? <laughs> I was looking for him the whole movie because he's the last name that comes up in the opening credits. Yeah. I was like, have I misread it? Is Tom Hardy even in this? Yeah, he and is. He show, yeah, this shows up yeah. in the um, right at the end. He's only yeah. in a couple of scenes. Does he wear a mask? No, he doesn't go to the masquerade ball no. that they go to. God, what a, what a missed opportunity <laughs> by Copla. He's so funny, isn't he? There was something... Um, I feel like age is good for Hardy. Yes. There's something... It, it, it's funny, these men who... Like Clooney... Age was good for Clooney. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. it gave them something that kind of defined them a little yeah, bit better. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's very He's very beautiful in this movie. Yeah. Tom. Uh, yeah, he needed to get a bit rough around the edges to be truly interesting, I think. Yeah. Although he's not in it very much, so he's not given a lot to work with, no, to be honest. He no. only gets about four or five lines. But even just kind of the, I don't know, like, you think of the first time you see him in... Inception, and he mm. just comes in hard with uh, just a, a slightly more, as you said, rugged masculinity, yep. which yep. kind of uh, contrasts nicely with uh, the beautiful cheekbones and the lovely S- lips. Speaking <laughs> of that rugged masculinity, uh, just back to Mad Max for one second. One of the criticisms that drove me fucking insane mm. was this whole like, oh, he's not a masculine Mad Max. He lets the women do everything. It's like, in my definition... I mean, I, I don't like masculine, feminine definitions, but if you want to fucking go down that route, isn't one of the most masculine slash adult things you can do is to cede control of a situation that you are clearly not fit for? Mm. Like when he hands the you know rifle to Furiosa and goes, do it. Mm. That's him saying, I'm aware of my limitations. Isn't that fucking... Oh, yeah. That's like, like, no, no, people are boring. It's unbelievable. You know, you get that great scene of where he goes off with the weapons and then you hear all these explosions yeah. and they come back and they're like, oh, do you, are you okay? And she points out that's... That's not his blood. Yeah. And you go, yeah, great. Yeah. Guess what? He's fine. Yeah. He can do shit. The, yeah. my, my other, the other criticism I hate is the fact that, well, they go all that way in one direction and then they go back. Oh. And it's like, well, that's... They leave as slaves and they come back as liberators. Yes. Like, that's... Anyway. <laughs> Some people the out there. In. You people. <laughs> you, you know the people. Not not you listening, but you know the people. You listening, you know the people. You're nodding your head to us at the moment. Write to us on Facebook and tell me that you're fucking nodding and I'll know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> We're all in this together. Um, regardless of our empathy for Marie, we still want to eat the rich, right? Yeah, of course. And in the end, this is a movie that explores how... Uh, she emotionally became a figurehead for all our outrage rather than the useless men behind the scenes making the decisions. Louis Mm. XVI is told not to give money to the American Revolution, but Marie is labelled the Queen of Debt. Mm. Do you have any last thoughts? Uh, No, I think you summed it up very well. I think it's uh, it's easy, you know, and this probably goes... All the way back, uh, I, I, I watched the, uh, the the recent episode of One Division where they uh, bring up the Salem 
witch oh, trials. Yeah. You know, that's a great example of it. It's like, you know, burn her. Yeah. Like, oh, come on, man. Like, yeah. Take some personal responsibility. Yeah. No. Oh, <laughs> heaven forbid, right? Yeah. Uh, some squid bits for you. Some historical squid bits. Well, I don't know if we get many historical no. ones on this. Uh, Marie's love affair with the Count Furzen. Furzen continued for the rest of their lives, although there isn't a uh, definitive proof that it was consummated. Furzen helped organise a failed escape plan for the royal family after they were taken to Paris. The scene at the end of the movie with the prince and princess saying farewell before fleeing the country, where, uh, in so in reality, the Duchess de Polignac, which is Rose Byrne, <clears throat> she did take refuge in Switzerland, and the Princess de Lambelle did initially leave for the safety of England, but returned return later at the request of Marie after she and her family were caught trying to escape. The princess remained with the royal family until her arrest, and after refusing to sign an oath renouncing the monarchy, she was mutilated, beheaded, and her head was mounted on a pike and paraded past the prison window of the Doom Queen. Which <laughs> Jesus Christ. Just people are fucking awful. Like, I know that, I, like, don't get me wrong, I know awful things were happening, but Jesus, like, fuck, like, what is happening? Um, you know the puppet shows they used to do with the the dead bodies. No. Yeah, they used to attach like marionette strings onto the dead onto the headless corpses and do these like theaters of the grotesque. Oh my god! Before before beheadings, like, it was just what what before beheadings. Well, no, no, no. Like oh, the, after I mean, no, I, dead. I, I yeah, mean, yes. it was like a conveyor belt yes. of beheadings. Yes. But you know, they'd have like these marionette shows of yep. dead bodies. But you know, for, as the uh, side entertainment between beheadings, just just unbelievable. You know what? My fear would be that I'd be beheaded and then they'd reattach my head and then I'd be strung up like a marionette and then I'd end up in a remake of The Shape of Water. (laughs) (laughs) Or you become a ventriloquist dummy doing your old jokes. Oh, no. (laughs) Not even the good ones. Not even the good ones. Stuff that's a little bit uh, whatever. Um, Coppola refused to read the famous biography biography of Marie Antoinette written by Stephen Zweig, which she judged too strict. She focused on the book by Antonia Fraser, who humanizes the Queen, a young girl with no connection to reality who finds herself in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Hall of Mirrors at the Palace of Versailles were in restoration, but Coppola was allowed to film the ball scene there for the wedding of Marie and Louis XVI. There were a pair of blue converse in the shoe sequence to represent that despite being of royal blood and tasked with performing her royal duty, she was still a teenage kid attempting to find her place in the world. Oh. I was wrapped when I found that afterwards because that's what I thought. And was, I'm always a bit excited. I was like, oh, yeah, I got I that. right. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I was right, but oh, I got it, you know. Yeah. Uh, this movie was going to be produced before Lost in Translation, but Coppola initially struggled while writing the screenplay as she attempted to juggle historical truth against a wide cast of characters to distract herself she started work on another story which became lost in translation and that success then reignited Coppola's creative spark for this one I think that's what uh, you, you, you find a lot of artists do this yeah. I think uh, that's how you get Barton Fink yeah. uh, because they were having trouble with Miller's Crossing which yes, is yes, fascinating yes, yes. to me because Miller's Crossing is like a dark horse favourite it's great Oh God. and I wonder if she would have even um, been given the budget the necessary budget to make right. this had Lost in Translation not been as successful uh, had not come out and been as successful I wonder if that's part of what was difficult to juggle like yeah. how are we going to do this you yeah. know uh, there are a few quotes in the movie that are taken from Marie Antoinette's real life and can be found in the biography by Lady Antonia Fraser uh, Louis 
Fifteen's comment about Marie's bosom upon her arrival in France is true. Yeah. Uh, Marie Antoinette's comment about having enough diamonds when receiving some as a gift and her comment to her husband that he told her she could throw a party but didn't specify for how long are all recorded exchanges and conversations recorded during different events in the Queen's life. Marie's uh, Marie Antoinette's brother, Joseph uh, II, didn't have a conversation with Louis XVI about sex with his sister and boasted about it in a letter to his brother in 1777. <laughs> and then the daughter was born in 1778. Can you imagine? Well, uh, I did it. I did it. I explained how to do it and I'm wrapped. Uh, Copler based the look of Count Axel von Fersen, which is Jamie, uh, Jamie Dornan, on Adamant. Ah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Marie Antoinette was 14 years old and Louis XV... Uh, Louis was 15 when they were married in 1770. Uh, Dunstan Schwartzman were in their mid-twenties. Copler originally wanted Angelina Jolie and Catherine Zeta-Jones for Madame du Barry, but the role eventually went to Asia Argento. Mm -hmm. Angelina Jolie would have been pretty fascinating for that as well. I I think uh, Argento is great, but that's... um, Catherine Zeta-Jones is kind of a bit underestimated as an actor, I think. I think she's really great. Chicago, come on. Yeah. Uh, Wine was served during all meals for the cast and crew, as is customary when filming in France. We're going to film our first movie in France just for that reason. Why are you here? Wine. (laughs) Marianne Faithful's mother in real life was originally from Vienna, Austria, with aristocratic roots in the Habsburg dynasty, so she was perfect to play the Empress Maria Theresa, who was a member of the dynasty and ruler of the Austrian lands. Marie Antoinette was 38 when she was executed. Okay. Uh, That's members of the group Phoenix playing guitar uh, at that point, and uh, the lead singer is Copla's real-life partner. Marie wasn't allowed to keep her pug mops when she entered france the last line of the film i am saying goodbye was actually said by louis 16th's youngest sister princess elizabeth and the real marie antoinette's final words were pardon me sire i did not do it on purpose after accidentally stepping on her executioner's shoe oh buddy like that is (laughs) fucking <laughs> so That's dark. Yeah, I, I deliberately um <laughs> I deliberately kept that until the very end because even though, you know, like take taking away everything about, you know, where you uh, feel about the rich and the and the monarchy and all of that kind of stuff, that is kinda heartbreaking because it just kind of shows a a level of Manners. <laughs> oh, but also, you know, like... <laughs> like, it is a bad... Like, when, when we... You know, like, I don't like the mega rich. No. But I also wouldn't be hanging around the fucking gallows, you know, watching... It's like when Saddam Hussein got hung, and a friend of mine was like, oh, do you want to watch the video? And it's like, no. 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 What? That doesn't mean that I'm not, like... I mean, it's the same when, like, you know, when they fucking got Osama Bin Laden, and everyone's partying in the streets. It's like... I think... This says bad things about you. I'm not yes. saying that the guy was good or that he deserved to live no, or whatever. But, what, but why partying were you... that he got shot in the fucking face? Like, yeah. what the fuck? Yeah. Like, it's a strange... I don't know. Like, I don't like Jeff Bezos, but I'm not baying for his blood. No. You know, I, I, I think it says bad things about uh, people when any kind of mob against anyone, rich, poor, 
black, white, whatever yes. it is, when people are calling for death, something's gone very, very bad. Yes, as a celebration as yes. well. Like, we, we need justice. Yes, justice, but- not fucking blood mob justice, you know. And I think, and, and once those things happen, they, start, they spin out of control very quickly. I think it's very telling that one of the main architects of the French Revolution himself, in the end, got his fucking head lopped off. Yeah. You know, that's what you see now with all these fucking Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and all these maniacs trying to court the, the Trump mob. Mm. It's like, you're trying to ride a cyclone. What the fuck are you thinking? Yeah. You really think you can control this? You, yeah. You can't. It's, this is so far out of your realm of being able to manage. I don't know what you, I, I, you know, I'm not a big student of history, but I know enough about history to know you don't. <laughs> you don't control an angry mob. No, no. It uh, it just says so much awfulness about the the, the worst aspects of human nature. Mm. Mm. Well, our next film is somewhere, and I'm excited about that because I had a little bit of a Stephen Dorff renaissance recently with the third season of True Detective. Ah, cool. You know when you see someone pop up in a yeah. TV series that you haven't seen for a while yeah, yeah, yeah. and they're really good yeah. and uh, there's something about Stephen Dorff where it's like there was a moment where you went, this guy is about to go boom yeah. and it didn't quite yeah, happen yeah, yeah. and he kept working and stuff like that so uh, I'll be interested to uh, go back and uh, check out this film and Maybe you should watch Marie Antoinette and give me another opinion. Sure. No, you don't have to do that. If I have a spare two hours, I'll do it. If you have a spare two hours. (laughs) I love catching up with Ben and I'm looking forward to having him back for our next Sophia Coppola movie, but also our thoughts on the Zack Snyder film. Uh, I know everyone is keen to get their thoughts out there ASAP, but I'd much rather ruminate before recording. That's the difference here. I have no interest in being first. I have more interest in being thoughtful and hopefully bringing some new angles that a hot take won't allow. I've had a little chat with Ben. We've kept it very minimal. I reckon he's got some hot takes. But I know there's some people out there who loved it, and I'm trying to see what they loved about it and you know i can i can see some of it <laughs> anyway we will get to that soon any excuse to have more ben on the show is always great also uh, with that in mind this is why rove and i haven't spoken about the falcon and winter soldier yet uh, i have to say uh, i was really underwhelmed with the first episode i like the second episode much more I think the new Captain America storyline is great, and I love uh, the sidekick of Battlestar. John Walker originally turned up in the Captain America comics I read as a kid, so I I remember him coming in and taking over the mantle. It was done differently in the comics, but I just think it's great, and people getting really upset about it. You know, this is not my cap and all this kind of stuff. Fantastic. That's good. That's that is what's making the show pop for me. I think there's... I'm really hoping they follow this through all the way. This is a great, great turn for the Marvel Universe. So... And look, I have to say, I think the heroes, uh, Sam and Bucky, I think they're at their best and most interesting when they're in contrast to the new Cap and his sidekick. Them by themselves has been okay. Them together has been 
uh, a little bit better, but sometimes I feel like they're pushing it a little bit. But when the two of them are opposite... uh, (laughs) <laughs> what did someone describe the new cap as looking like? Like the old guy from Up as Cap. I saw that online. It made me laugh a lot. Brutal to Wyatt Russell. Uh, but anyway, when when our heroes are opposite those uh, new cap and Battlestar, uh, I think that's when they really pop. And that's a really interesting storyline. So anyway, let's wait to see where that goes. And then we'll bring Rove in to have a proper chat about it. Later this week, I'll have the next podcast covering The Leftovers. Only three episodes left in the first season, and I am excited to cover what happens next. I've learned and remembered a lot about the series with this close rewatch, uh, and it's been really fun. Like, I love this series so much, and I, I haven't watched it in quite a while. So thank you for inspiring me to go back to it, and thank you for all the great feedback on those particular episodes i love spending time with you and i want to hear your thoughts not just on the leftovers on everything you know as an example in our private facebook page Marlis andrew is one of the guys who gave me something to consider when reviewing snyder's justice league and i'm grateful to him for expressing his thoughts as you know i don't particularly like Facebook as an entity, but I love our page, which feels totally what the internet should be. Interesting people coming together and sharing their thoughts and being respected for those thoughts. If you're not a member, come and join. All you have to do is ask. It's just a nice place where we can talk about what we're loving without fear of spoilers. Uh, Or if you don't have much time in your day, just join our open Facebook page to discover what else is coming up. Or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter. Anyway, whatever, whatever works best for you. To my Melbourne listeners, I'm sorry I'm not coming down for the Melbourne Comedy Festival this year, but uh, maybe we can do something later in the year. I'd love to see everyone down there and uh, bring bring a show. You know, maybe we'll bring a live Big Squid. Let me know if you'd like something along those lines. Once again, the Facebook page is probably best. Uh, actually, why don't you tell me if you're in Melbourne or wherever, really, uh, if you would like a live Big Squid and uh, who you would like to have on. I'm guessing if you're in Melbourne, we should we should get Tony Martin, right? Yeah, that feels like a no-brainer. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a nice review online and uh, continue recommending us to your friends. I've seen you doing that online. It's really appreciated. We're, we're building nicely, actually. So uh, I appreciate all the help uh, that you... Uh, send this way uh more coming up and remember next week we have the big ryan hughes interview he's an absolute champion human being and so interesting i think you're gonna love it let's finish with a quote from photographer diane arbus a photograph is a secret about a secret the more it tells you the less you know until then Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.